Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we're visiting with Vicki Hurd, the author of Rebugging the Planet. Hi, Vicki. Hi, good to be here. It's, it's great to visit with you. And what we're going to be talking about today is, is obviously one of the most important topics uh, for our entire global community and planetary situation. So I'm really, really excited we have this opportunity to visit with you. Great to be here. I, I, I have been so pleased with the reaction to the report and people's interest in it. So it's great to be speaking about it. Wonderful. And I think for fun, we'll maybe refer to this episode as our creepy crawly episode. Okay. <laughs> as long as you don't put nasties in there, because they're not nasty. <laughs> not at all. No, we no. beloved, maybe. Beloved creepy crawlies. Yeah. Yes. Vicki Hurd is head of the Sustainable Farming Campaign for Sustain, the Alliance for Better Food and Farming, and she also runs an independent consultancy. An experienced and award-winning environmental campaigner, researcher, writer, and strategist working mainly in the food farming and environmental policy arenas, Vicki has worked on government policy for many years and is also the author of Perfectly Safe to Eat, The Facts on Food. Vicki's passion is insects. The first pets she gave her children were a family of stick insects, <laughs> and she had a giraffe-necked weevil tattoo for her 50th birthday. <laughs> Vicki also has a master's degree in pest management, and she is a fellow of the Royal Entomological Society. And Vicki, as you and I were just discussing before we began to record, uh, today is your first day. Congratulations mm -hmm. on a on a new job mm -hmm. as a strategic leader on agriculture at the Wildlife Trust. So that's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, been a busy busy day, but uh, it's good to be there. Oh, I'm so sure. And, and yeah, thanks for taking the time on on day one to visit with it's us. Okay. And really excited to dive into this. Um, and and to kick things off. I'm just going to ask you a very open question. Like, why why bugs? Why does it matter? What are we talking about? Yeah. Well, they, I, they, they're such a critical part of our ecosystem, part of our lives. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I don't think enough people recognize that or realize that. Although I think that's changing. One of the reasons also that I wrote the book was I think people are beginning to be interested. There's been a lot more um, wildlife programs that cover invertebrates. There's been books, there's been like citizen science where people get involved. And and I think we need to tap into that and understand what it means for people in terms of their lives, their politics, their consumption. Um, so I wrote the book with that in mind, but also with the idea of making bugs uh, uh, their role and their brilliance and their beauty um, a bit clearer. So it's a paperback. It's not, you know, it's not a huge tome with loads of pictures, but um, uh, there's a lot out there on invertebrates. But I just wanted to sort of distill it in one book with loads and loads of tips for what you can do as well, which was key for me as a campaigner. I always want to communicate what you can do. But they're also in trouble. That's the other reason. Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll be talking about that. And, mm. and just to show um, those of our audience who are, watching the video uh, version of our discussion. Mm. This is a copy of the book. This is actually a galley advanced mm. uh, copy. Um, and, and yeah, the cover is so beautiful with all It the is nice, isn't it? Yeah, the diversity there. And it's not just insects. That's the important thing. Insects are critical, but all the other invertebrates, the, the species without a spine um, in our rivers, in our seas, on our land, in our soil, they're everywhere almost everywhere so and they're really critical and combining them with the fungi we certainly wouldn't be here without them absolutely can you give us the bad news where are yeah. we in terms of yeah. what's happening with the invertebrates right now yeah there's some really scary long-term trend studies which shows over decades how 
um, the number of species and diversity of species has been declining where they've been actually looking. And that's not everywhere. So there's a big gap in the, in the data, a big gap in the research, which I think in um, scientists globally are beginning to fill. You know, in the last five years, there's been a massive um, uh, scientific recognition of the problem. Um, so they're starting to, to look how we can fill that. Funnily enough, just as an aside, you know, one of the things we've been researching on invertebrates for the past 200 years is how to kill them, how to get rid of them, how to zap them. And now, you know, there's a lot more money and, and research going into how to protect them, how to, to avoid destroying their habitats and their lives. So that's really exciting, but it does mean there's gaps. But what we're seeing is a combination of factors. There isn't one single thing, um, but we know that several different factors have been creating this big long-term decline in many species and many critical species, but also species that we love, you know, butterflies and um, mayflies, all, all sorts that we actually love because of how beautiful they are, but also they feed other things that we think are beautiful, like birds. And obviously they have critical functions in our food system, but uh, climate change, habitat loss, losing their habitat and their habitat being fragmented, which means they're really isolated. They're doing well in one patch, but they can't get to the next patch to mate, to recolonize, to feed, to re have a refuge. They haven't got that corridor. Those fragmentations are, are really, really problematic, particularly in farmed land and land which has been heavily degraded through of usually farming, but other, other reasons as well, like mining um, and development and uh, encroachment from cities and towns. So that those two are biggies, but also pollution, um, pollution coming from pesticides, fertilizers, manure, particularly in, in river and uh, marine environments, which are, have so many invertebrates in them, um, critical invertebrates. Um, and so that pollution, but it's also things like plastic pollution and noise pollution. Um, and so, the, yeah, the, these biggies, you know, climate change is a critical one because they're such small animals. Their surface to volume ratio is very high. So they can lose heat and lose water very quickly. Um, so they can be particularly badly impacted when you've got extremes that they weren't predicting. Um, at the same time, insects and invertebrates can adapt. They, you know, they're known as very adaptable. They produce millions of uh, offspring every year, many of them. So they can adapt. But, you know, if we change it so fast as we are with the climate change and habitat loss and pollution incidents, then it's very difficult for them and they just crash. Um, or they don't thrive and they don't move around as they should. And so that's that's one of the things that we can all do something about um, having gardens, having green spaces. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as as you and I previously discussed, mm -hmm. we had uh, Scott Xerces on the podcast series, the executive director of the, or excuse me, Scott Black, Brilliant. the executive director mm -hmm. of the Xerces Society. And mm -hmm. in that discussion, we were talking about the what looks like potentially the sixth great extinction. Mass extinction. Yeah. We're observing. Mm -hmm. It's scary, very scary. Mm. And I've, I've heard some pretty staggering figures around um, biodiversity uh, and biomass uh, reductions. And he, he mentioned in Germany, a study showing something like 75% decrease in mm. flying insect biomass. That was a big one. Yeah, that was one that uh, triggered a lot of media interest. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary. So like, mm. what's your what's your read? What's your take on where we're at worldwide in terms of some of these percent changes? Well, they are beginning to sort of do um, collective analyses of all the studies, and you know, suggestions that forty percent are at risk of going extinct, and some of these will be ones that we haven't even discovered yet. You know, there's there's invertebrates even you know around us that we haven't discovered yet in the in the soils, but in places in the global south in South America, there's there's millions probably that we don't know about so it's hard to say but you know 40 percent is drawn from a lot of studies that we're potentially seeing mass extinctions um and then there's the sort of problem that you get when you get ex sort of extinction or crashes locally and when i mean locally it could be in, in a nation or in a region um and you know we talk about foods and you know we love foods it, it, chocolate and coffee they rely on a very tiny fly to be pollinated and if you lose that fly for other reasons for deforestation for pollution mining elsewhere you're not going to get the chocolate and you're not going to get the coffee so it's it's things like that and and um 
it's it, it is quite scary when you look at the figures about deforestation and removal of wetlands, critical wetlands um, in places. And we've done a lot of damage already um, in, in I live in the UK, in North America. You've got a lot of clearance already, but you do have your wilderness areas, which are amazing uh, refuges. And our wilderness areas are much smaller, um, but we're, we're trying. But it, it, there are some really serious uh, alarm bells ringing that we've got to all act on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, wait a minute. So it's one species of fly that, that pollinates mm -hmm. chocolate worldwide? It's a tiny, tiny fly, yeah. I think there's probably different species worldwide that have learned how to do it, but from, from where chocolate originally came from, which I think might be Asia, but I might be wrong about that. Uh, but yeah, it's tiny. And so, you know, you can't have another kind of species doing it because they'll be too big or their wings will be too long or they won't have the right mouth parts. You know, these these evolution of uh, relationships between bugs and plants have been over millennia. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you can't recreate them that easily. However adaptable invertebrates are. Um, but what we're trying to do in some parts of the world where they've lost their pollinators, like in China, they're actually doing hand pollination. And they're developing robotic bees. I talk about that in the book, actually. I think it's hilarious, at least sad. Um, you know, the millions that will be spent and the, and the resources like metals that will be used in creating robotic bees. Um, when we've got something on tap that is free, re replicates itself, does the best job and gets right to the heart of the flower. Uh, you know, we should be protecting the bees and the other pollinators absolutely without fail. Um, rather than investing billions in robotic bees or spending millions in hand pollination. Hand pollination is is suitable in some circumstances when you want to do things differently, but it's not a solution to world hunger without it, pollinators. Oh my gosh, you know, this reminds me of an episode we recently did with Tom Chi, with, who has a company called At One Ventures. And he's he's tracking all kinds of emerging regenerative technologies. And he was yeah. talking about in the energy uh, industry, there was a multi-billion dollar carbon sequestration plant yeah. mm -hmm. that uh, was funded by one of the big oil and gas companies um, mm -hmm. that, that sequestered or has the potential to sequester um, the same amount of carbon as something like approximately 137 beavers beavers, right? The animals that do yeah. their thing, <laughs> thing for free. Yes. And, and don't, we don't have um, mm. uh, depreciation. We don't have, um, you know, machinery that's wearing out over time. And so yeah. Yeah, lots of cement probably involved in that. Lots of cement, which is unbelievably exactly. bad for climate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's, it's if, if and as we're getting more intelligent and harmonized with yeah. the natural uh brilliance genius mm -hmm. of all these different species and their their roles i yeah. think they're they're going to do so much more in the way of restoration mm -hmm. and regeneration than probably yeah. you know many no. more not to say we we shouldn't do anything absolutely with yeah but but there is like billions spent on that which could be used to really reinforce the existing systems that and natural systems that can do it so well like forests and woods and uh, beavers as you say they're amazing keystone species but so wood ants you know making sure the wood ants can survive they, they provide a environment in in woods for instance up in scotland which provide a really balanced environment of pest predators and um, pathogens and herbivores making sure that the forest survives well when you take them out the forest declines and you get overabundance of pest species. So those keystone species in the, exist in the invertebrate world as well as the, the mammalian. But yeah, I mean, the carbon capture and storage, which is possibly what was being referred to there, the carbon, you know, it's still untried. It's still untested at scale. And they're pouring millions into it. Subsidies are taxpayers' yeah. money. It's going into that. Yeah. So it's really, it strikes me as interesting uh, what you mentioned about the uh, wild open spaces here in the United yeah. States versus yeah. the smaller versions in the UK. I'm curious from a, from a land use uh, mm. perspective, what, what would your policy recommendations be in a place like the UK, given yeah. Yeah. Um, patterns have already been deployed? Well, we've got a very... Um, dense population in the UK. You know, we haven't got as much land as you have to have wilderness areas that are genuinely left to rewild themselves and maintain themselves to, to a, 
a, a strong degree. Um, but what we've done with our natural spaces and our natural parks are our, our parks that are supposed to be protected is not protect them very well i mean mm. seriously not and and you use them in ways which many think are, are deeply unsustainable and certainly don't retain a uh, a nature and wildlife that we need to prov to provide that refuge for those species um so there's a lot of campaigns to to reinforce the rewilding approach to natural environment, natural areas. Um, and then there's a whole spectrum. Like if you're going to farm in those natural parks, the nature parks, which we tend to have to because we've got a very large population that needs feeding and we don't want to draw food from elsewhere too much, um, to do it in ways which protect nature. And you can do that. You can do nature-based farming um, with a lot of really great habitat for, for um, and rotations in the farm system which can actually retain a really good population diverse population of invertebrates which will also help you when you farm you know that pred pest predators you know they're brilliant at doing what they do in a farm situation um but actually introducing that into systems which have been farming sheep for a long time or intensive uh cereals etc it takes a lot to change the culture and the habits and also the supply chains and, and the buyers. So, so it's a complex picture um, we weave if we're going to try and do more sort of wilderness areas in the UK. There's a lot of opposition. There's a lot of pressure. It, it's, a, it's a bit of a hot topic here in the UK. Um, mm. But that's why I mention it. You've had your wilderness for, for many years created by politicians and uh, maintained, um, which we can be envious of, but we don't necessarily have the opportunity to completely recreate. Yeah, perhaps a, a shout out to Teddy Roosevelt and others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's a, a bit of a. But we have, you know, we have done things here. We have green belts. We have natural parks, but they they are under a huge amount of pressure. Amazing. Well, I want to be sure that we're talking about the invertebrates and soil and water. But before mm. going there, the flying ones, the ones perhaps mm. that many of People us might. See think of more immediately you know i i drive um through mm. the midwest uh oh, with yeah. some regularity and i've really noticed these past few years that we get far fewer bugs on mm. the windshield than yeah. we did past driving there as a kid yeah. and i around here lately in colorado i've been actually thrilled to see more bugs oh. on the windshield as 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 perhaps morbid as that might sound or counterintuitive as that might sound what it essentially implies is that the populations are are mm -hmm. stronger right stronger absolutely I, I you know it's funny that was the subtitle of the book originally when i originally put it to chelsea green who was so great in accepting it they said maybe the young people won't know what you're talking about when you say and how to get the bugs back on your windscreen because we haven't had them for so long in the uk unless you're in an amazing organic farm or a, a, one of the good parks it's very rare to get bugs on your windscreen but funny enough we have a bug life which is the conservation organization for invertebrates they do a splatter campaign every year and they they get people to print out a splatter test for their um front of their car and then you you do you drive for a while and then you send it in the results and they it's citizen science with the splatter test but uh, i think you know that's an indicator if if you're getting more in colorado that's that's really great but i think the, the intensification of our farming systems the the neatness of it the chemicals the reduction in um edges and woodlands uh, all massive factors in that you know the, the invertebrates just haven't got a chance mm -hmm. wow i love i love hearing about the, the citizen mm -hmm. science work we did something yes. here of organizations and the uh, city of Boulder um, with with different organic soil amendments in people's yards right. testing for uh, carbon sequestration and biological. Right. Great. Mm. Really a lot of fun to participate in that. That's cool to hear about. We're um, actually starting to talk here about people getting money off their water bills if they have soil in their gardens because people are starting to you know too much concrete or tiling or even worse plastic grass you know they they are terrible in all sorts of ways but they really don't absorb the water so you get you know potential flooding and things like that so it's interesting fiscal measures that could help drive people towards that and more carbon knowing that they've got more carbon would excite people i would have thought so that's really clever of boulder 
Oh, that's amazing. How far along is, is that effort? Not, is that... not very far, as far as I know. I saw a headline. I thought I was very excited about it. We yeah. need to push it. We need to push those things. They're, they're, you know, getting it's those nudge things that can help people make decisions differently. Um, although I think we should ban plastic lawns. Sorry, that's it. Oh. <laughs> plastic lawns. But I don't know if we'll get that. But, you know, there's all sorts of things people can do. Even yeah. if they've con got concrete, they can put pots, do a lot. You know, if they can't get rid of the concrete, they can do an awful lot for the bugs. Yeah, and absolutely. Mm. What are what are some of the techniques if, if folks have a lot of concrete they're dealing with? Yeah, well, we've got actually Chelsea Green have published a brilliant book by a guy and I've forgotten his name right now, but um, I can share it with you. Um, who's okay. done? He's the um, it's like um, balcony gardener or something like that, and he he's got brilliant ways of producing amazing abundance in pots in planters um any you know even on a balcony you can produce a lot of food and a lot of um flowers for for the pollinators and that that book's got loads of ideas and, and there's a lot on the in internet as well about how you can um uh, raise a lot of um plants in in diversity and diversity is key to protecting the bugs so if you have a, a garden with mostly concrete you can put a huge amount of planters you know raised beds with soil yep. so you get the soil bugs as well and healthy so soil gives you healthy food um but the, even if you can't do raised beds you can do a little pots you know you if you've got a small yard you could have 50 pots all producing different things and flowers at different times a year and having that year-round flowering could be really important for for the invertebrates in terms of a refuge food source um nesting areas so yeah there's a lot you can everybody can do something yeah absolutely. we can all do something i love this and and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm starting to envision slogans save the chocolate fly and yes uh, yes plant plant a uh plant something in a garden save the chocolate fly well that might be more to do with what you you know what you buy so your lifestyle because that's as critical as, as what you do in your area so how you purchase chocolate you know go for organic and fair trade and um shop around shop around and and find out those what they're doing to to actually reduce chemical use because there are chemicals used in in these systems and uh, chocolate and coffee can be grown in really great agroforestry systems because they they're shade plants so it's really great if they mixed forestry systems producing coffee cocoa and fruits and that can be really beneficial for the communities producing it as well mixed mixed outcomes feeding your local communities as well um to yeah. so ask asking questions of your shopkeepers and your retailers love it yeah you know vicky my um my uh permaculture teacher the late scott Pittman, uh give him a big uh, shout out he mm. did some consulting work for the mars company decades oh, yeah. ago at the time they were monocropping their uh, cacao yeah experiencing all kinds of issues mm. and problems that the doesn't work monocrops eventually don't work i think yeah yeah he basically went in and, and recommended mm. um multi-story uh yeah exactly uh, 3d 3d growing yeah, yeah brilliant exactly. mm. it was really good so chocolate coffee and i'll just give a quick shout out we've done episodes with dr bronner's and with equal exchange the uh uh, co-op with chocolate mm. and coffee offerings that um, we can mm. all select and of course uh, recognizing the power of our consumer demand yeah. in addition to our engagement with governance and policy and all of the mm. things we can do in our own yards and neighborhoods and gardens mm. um, it, it really forms this I think trifecta and mm. I know Vicki you you speak mm. to this a lot in terms of um, calls to action and maybe we'll we'll repeat mm. this at the end of the episode just okay cool. so mm. folks with it but I was I was struck um, when we were chatting earlier about your way of framing what people can do about these issues. Yeah, I, I tend because it's a bit overwhelming, isn't it? The, you know, the global crisis and cr right now we've got unbelievable climate extremes going on um, and that's going to accelerate. <laughs> so people might get a bit overwhelmed. But I, I said to people, have a have a bit of a plan if you have got you understand the role of invertebrates in our environment that you know they are absolutely critical for our pollination for our soils for our water systems they do amazing filtration but most importantly they provide nutrients for all the food that we grow anyway loads of ways in which they're critical um and and also for our clothes and the, the wooden chairs we're sitting on we wouldn't have any of that um so if you care about that have a little plan and the plan can be 
like what you're doing in your house or your garden or your local park or even just the verge outside your block of flats you know or if there's a space that you you can actually start to talk to people about doing something on so that's have a plan for doing something in your area or your garden or your house even protecting the spiders which are really great fly control as well um so have something for your place something about your lifestyle so we talked about you know going fair trade organic start to ask questions start to explore where you can buy directly from the farmer um because then they'll get more reward for what they're doing so they'll be able to do it better they can transition to what we call agroecological farming which is like organic um and if they get such a tiny percentage that they usually get from a very complex supply chain and then retailers who are incredibly cutthroat at the other end and all competing with each other to to, to get uh, people in into the doors. So it's very complex and costly chain. So farmers often get very little. So if you can buy direct or go through something called a better food trader, then you are making a big difference. But it's not just food as well. Uh, it's also about what food you buy, eating, you know, things like everything from the land has an impact on invertebrates. So when things are very, very impactful on the land, for instance, um, livestock products, um, palm oil, oil seeds, they're all coming from either very intensive systems, which require a lot of feed into the livestock or produce, uh, produced using um, deforestation or destruction of well, uh, really important wetlands. So thinking about what you buy as well, and there's loads of tips and ideas. This isn't a you must kind of thing. It's it's just think about what you buy, how it's infected the land. And so I give a lot of tips in the book, but think about eating less and better meat, fresh where you can. Junk food is really bad for the environment and the bugs. So that's the second thing. Um, and then I would say, what you're wearing and your, you know, your clothes, what you purchase, all that's important too, because a lot of that comes from the land. Um, and then the final thing, so that's the second thing, your lifestyle. And then the third thing is your politics. You as a citizen, how you can influence your local politicians in how they manage the parks um, or how they help people to choose differently. Um, and then nationally, you know, at a national estate or, or national level, um, how you can work with organisations, writing letters to members of parliament or representatives um, and being the voice for the bugs and you can be a voice if you join together you can be a powerful movement and in the book there's loads of organizations you can join and international ones as, as well as local ones and joining together can be a very powerful thing to counter the might of some very powerful uh organizations corporations that want the status quo you know want to be able to continue to use chemicals that we know are harmful or um, continue to drive production in a, in a way which we know is, is is the wrong direction for protecting those soils and protecting our invertebrates. I'll leave it there. But yeah, those three things have a little plan how you can be a citizen, be a you know lifestyle change, and what your place is. Thank you. Uh, it's so wonderful and inspiring. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're actually um, maybe I'll pick this up in our behind the scenes piece that we'll record after the main podcast interview, okay. but. We're working on a resource for um, neighborhoods and homeowners associations to ah, brilliant practices and rules mm. to affect this kind of systemic change at the local level. And perhaps we can uh, talk mm. about that later in terms of something we might collaborate around. Because I, the way you're articulating this and the work that you've been doing um, is is so connected. We'd love to collaborate around that. That'll be great. I mean, what people can do in their gardens, I mean, particularly I know the UK best, you know, there's an incredible resource there um, to, to link up habitats. And so, yeah, with with the local parks and local spaces. So there's a really amazing refuge that urban spaces can can provide if we get it right. Yeah. And I got to ask, you know, we've done um, episodes here at the Regenerative Farm where I'm located with Nick uh, Di Domenico and Marissa Pulaski mm -hmm. and also at a neighboring flower farm with uh, Ollie Retzloff and uh, his partner, Eric, and my goodness, the scenery in those episodes yeah. is so beautiful. beautiful. And we talked about some of our, our favorite species. And I'm curious mm. for you, where you're located in the north mm. of London with your uh, garden there, what are some of your favorite um, species for yeah. habitat and oh. other invertebrates? I do get asked this. I find it so difficult. I find it so difficult. But I will say, you mentioned my uh, weevil that I've got on one shoulder, which is a giraffe 
necked weevil um, from Madagascar. On Milo's shoulder, when I'm 60, I'm going to have a cockroach because I always said cockroaches. I think there might be June bugs or mayflies in, in America and different names. They've got many names, actually, the cockroach around the world, but they're incredibly beautiful. They've got the most insane antennae with sort of feathered antennae, particularly males, the bigger than the females. And they bumble around and they're big, big animals. Um, they're just beautiful. So I will get that. But it's not my favorite. I, just, I don't have a favorite, but in my garden, I get very, very, very excited when I see hummingbird hawk moths. Um, and we, I got one the other day and I was, it's partly because I'd left some weeds to grow, which they like to lay their eggs on. And I watched it laying eggs on my cleavers, which is what, what the weeds were called. And I let them grow. So I do let weeds grow and I don't necessarily call them weeds. They're just, you know, happy plants and they produce a lot of flowers some of them so it was feeding and laying eggs and i was just in heaven and i i put that on my twitter feed and my instagram and it's it just like you can hear my excitement <laughs> i just it, it really because they're so big and beautiful and they look like hummingbirds and they're not that much smaller than hummingbirds and they've got unbelievably fast wing beat and they've got incredible proboscis which can make them allow them to reach deep deep flower nectarine nectar nectaries in flowers so and they've they've developed that as we were saying over millennia to be able to do that purpose you know have that purpose in their relation and we get loads of hoverflies which i love as well they're so brilliant and a lot of people misunderstand hoverflies so i often use hoverflies as a as something about talking about um rebugging attitudes um because some people will see a hoverfly like a Hornet mimic hoverfly, which is, can be two centimeters long, um, looks big and it's striped like a, a bee or a wasp and people will be frightened. But if you know, it's just a big fat pollinator <laughs> and it's amazingly beautiful the way it flies. Um, so I use that as, you know, getting children, don't get the fear in children, talk to them, that's a hoverfly. And even if you see a wasp, they're not going to hurt you if you don't hurt them. Um, and, you know, trying to rebug attitudes through seeing things and taking a photograph and sharing it and saying, these are credible, these ants, they're not going to do any harm. Let them be. <laughs> and, or if you can't let them be, shut them out, but don't use chemicals and so on. I get yeah. I get a lot in my rather wild garden, as you can imagine. I love it. I love it. Do you have, are there particularly favorite plants or herbs that you plant in your garden? I've got an awful lot of um, alkanet, which I haven't planted at all. And any gardener will probably gasp with horror because it's an incredibly pervasive weed. But it produces very tiny blue flowers and a lot of um, plant matter, which you can actually um, compost. It's a brilliant compost plant um, to make compost tea in, in permaculture and use that a lot. Um, but the, all the animals love it. The tiny, tiny flowers. I think, how on earth can that be a big honey pot? But they love it. And so I do like that. And I let it flower every year. Um, but I... I have all sorts of salvias and um, I do have some roses and lilacs that come and go depending depending on the year or whether I've pruned them properly. I'm not a great gardener, to be honest. Um, but the, the key to gardening for invertebrates is diversity. Yeah, whatever the question, the answer is diversity and no chemicals. And when you buy plants, try and avoid ones that have been grown with chemicals, if you can ask questions of your garden centre. And avoid peat as well, peatland um are really in in the UK and maybe in across definitely across the globe, peats are being taken up to provide um, fuel and to provide medium for growing um, plants for horticulture, and that is destroying one of the most biodiverse and carbon-rich habitats on the planet. The amount of carbon in a peat bog is extraordinary, and the amount of wonderful invertebrates and plants as well. But uh, We've got to avoid peat. So if you're going to a garden centre, say, I want it peat-free, please, and chemical-free. Yeah, absolutely. It's So I guess heading in the direction of um, mm. soil and mm. some of the wonderful invertebrates uh, that, mm. that make up the soil ecology yeah. of the world. Tell us, tell us a bit about that yeah. and what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I did talk about earthworms quite a lot in the book. Um, one of one of the things that alarmed me particularly, I think it was one of um, your big magazines, had a huge, um, uh, what's it called, a, 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 a episode of the magazine, um, which was uh, all about the um, impact of climate change on the earthworms. Because earthworms, it found in almost all habitats around the globe, because they and, and worms, they provide such an important role in the um, 
soil, not only not only by um, making their habitats through it and creating spaces for water and air to penetrate, which is absolutely vital to make a good soil for plants to grow in and for other animals. And But they also provide an incredibly important environment for the microbes and the fungi and the spore spores of the fungi to they actually they're also oh, they're like truckers they're like the big truckers in the um, soil environment taking nutrients and taking spores and taking um, uh, microbes from one place to another and inoculating another place which maybe is low on them because they're sticky they've got sticky um, sort of um, epidermis and also in their stomachs as they ingest plant matter they you know defecate an incredibly rich uh, uh um, soil improver, um, which is full of invertebrates, full of, sorry, uh, microbes and important uh, things. So th those invertebrates like worms and nematodes are critical. But there's also a wonderful thing. If you ever get a chance to look online, um, to look for um, images of springtails, you'll fall in love. You'll never see them unless you have a, a really good camera, but you can see them online because they are beautiful. They are so cute and they are... Um, a form of invertebrate that does a really important plant matter um, uh, digesting process and in the soil everywhere. Springtails are everywhere and they're very, very important. And I also fell in love with tardigrades, which uh, I think might be called water bears or moss piglets, which are great. Um, and they are important everywhere as well. They're found everywhere and they're almost indestructible. They've found that they can be completely desiccated for, for decades and come come alive again and radiated and all sorts. So tardigrades or water bears are another favourite of mine, but there's so much in the soil. And so when we disturb the soil if the soil is already well looked after disturbing it with plowing or tilling isn't a disaster but it does have an impact but where you've got soil that's been completely overworked you know and chemicals poured on year in year out month in month out that has such a bad impact you know those chemicals and the disturbance that the rhizosphere which is really important you know the my mycelium of the fungi on which is a critical part as are the invertebrates can all be disrupted and the invertebrates can be harmed so you're looking for systems of farming which are really creating good soils um and uh yeah so yeah, soils above them. But yeah, people often don't think as they're walking, walking on soil what's going on underneath. But there is a whole citizenry down there of invertebrates working with the fungi and everything else to uh, keep keep us safe and keep us fed and uh, healthy. I love it. You know, and Vicky mm -hmm. talking about the the water bears. Um, mm. Yeah, I think I've hurt. got a I've got a cuddly one somewhere. It's gone missing, but oh, I've got somebody knitted me one, and it was so lovely. <laughs> oh, how fun! I've mm. heard they can survive in space. Mm. They've yeah, they they have taken them up there and brought them down again, and they they're pretty instructional. And as such, they're providing incredible research material, you know, in their genes and how they do it and the chemicals, you know, within the system. As are many, you know, like the fungi as well, um, and. Uh, invertebrates that can withstand freezing. You know, there's quite a few um, actually soft-bodied invertebrates they find in um, uh, the Antarctic, Antarctic environments, which can freeze during the frozen month and then unfreeze. The chemicals that they use in their, their little bodies to do that, extraordinary. Yeah, real brilliance in, in um, the way they've been evolved over millennia. You mentioned in, in the book biomimicry, which is a mm. concept. Yeah a lot of folks are familiar with more people are learning about and, and it reminds me of that because some of the mm. sort of anti-freeze yes mm. analogs in some of these species we might be mm. able to learn exactly from yeah actually and, and also biomimicry in terms of um like some of the cuticles and the um the makeup of the exoskeleton which covers all, all invert uh, insects adult insects and they've they're looking so much at how to recreate those uh, in incredibly robust um, materials, which, you know, we could create, I don't know, other things that we need as we go forward, you know, in the, which are also carbon based, not, you know, fossil fuel based, you know, in a good way um, and uh, clever. Yeah, there's there's a beetle called the um, diabolical ironclad, which is a, a big big beetle and you can roll over it with a car and it won't get destroyed because of the way the layers have been made and, and the, you know the, the whole 
chemical makeup and structure is extraordinarily smart. Um, and they're learning how to do drones by looking at how flies fly. Um, you know, and uh, how termites create their termite mounds that are incredibly sophisticated um, temperature and water control um, and using the external climate to, to maintain uh, the, the, the temperature and, and moisture in, uh, in ways that mean that they can create huge colonies and huge amount of uh, babies uh, in the way that they do, which, you know, they can be destructive. And in the UK, we don't have termites. I know they can be a destructive force, but uh, some we're the biggest destructive force in reality. So we should be able to share space with them if we can. Absolutely. Speaking of these large colonies, you, you also mm. you talk about super colonies and there's, yes. you mentioned um, in Southern Europe, there's a super colony of ants stretching mm -hmm. some 3,700 miles. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. And I often wow. liken it to, you know, and if they meet each other, even if they're thousands of miles away, if they meet one from, you know, that may have been carried, you know, we, we do a lot of um, species transfer through our trading systems and our um, journeys, you know, and traveling and holidays and stuff. So if you get an ant traveling to the other part of the world, if they happen to be from the same original species, they'll say, hi, you know, how are you? Like, a, you know, Arsenal supporter will say hi to another Arsenal supporter on the other side of the world. But if it's a Manchester United supporter, <laughs> and if it's, a, you know, so if it's an ant from a different species, even though they look pretty much the same to us, they'll fight. But they can recognize each other so well because they have such brilliant communication tools. Honestly, we think we're brilliant with the internet and our, you know, uh, we telephones and all that. You know, they did it well before us. They they have so many tools to communicate, especially in this the um, social classes like the wasp, the ant. There are spiders that are social as well, um, and bees and termites, and they're so clever. So many different ways of talking to each other and creating a work. Um, uh, set up that they all know their role. They all know what they're for, be it nursing the babies or fighting off intruders or collecting food or being the queen. Yeah, it, it's, but it's all through communication and genes. And uh, it's so clever. I, I just, in the respect I have for them since I, before I had it anyway, but since doing the book and, you know, delving into the new research that's out there since I lost, did deep research, it was just astounding. And you're right, the ants are amazing, you know, and uh, termites too. They, they've uh, created huge colonies over very vast areas, all the same family. Amazing. Yeah, I, I love yeah. the analogy of the uh, sports yeah. fans. Yes, the world. yeah. For folks who yeah, don't yeah. know Arsenal or Manchester United and don't listen to the BBC sport updates, uh, <laughs> talking about football, um, mm -hmm. not American football, but soccer yeah. football. And yep. uh, yeah, that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. That's such a fun way to think about that. Yes, yes. And they have to fight because they've got to protect their, you know, their space. You know, it is, it, in nature, I, you know, Aaron, you know this, there is a huge amount of collaboration, but there is obviously conflict as well. You know, that's that's how it is. We've all seen the amazing safaris in Africa on on uh, wonderful nature programs and that, you know, the lion getting its, its prey, that happens. But I think an awful lot going on in nature is actually collaboration or, you know, leaving each other, you know, giving each other space. But it's incredible, the collaboration between invertebrates and plants, for instance. We already know about pollination, but there's many more ways they collaborate. And humans as well. You know, I talk about in my book where humans are using invertebrates, like um, I think it's the uh, weaver ants, which um, in Asia, they've learned over many hundreds of years to use the weaver ants to stop you know they can create huge colonies of weaver ants in their fruit plantations and the weaver ants stop the other invertebrates and other species that would take the um fruit and and uh cause uh economic harm to the farmer and so they look after the weaver ants in these huge colonies of beautiful nests that the weaver ants create uh, just one example many many uh, out there oh my gosh mm. well i want to ask you about water species mm. but before we go there let me just remind our audience uh this is the why on earth community podcast i'm your host aaron william perry and today we're visiting with the author of rebugging the planet vicky Hurd. and vicky i'm i'm so thrilled to to share that this book is published by our friends and partners at chelsea green mm. publishing 
And I want to give them a shout out along with a few of our other partners and sponsors of our podcast series. Um, by the way, you can get a 35% discount on this and any of the other Chelsea Green books, audiobooks, etc., going through our whyonearth.org website, linking on our partners and supporters page if you'd like to. And uh, that we have, uh, in addition to Chelsea Green, we have Purium Organic Superfoods to thank. They also are offering a special uh, discount to our friends and network. We've got Earth Hero, the sustainability home goods and uh, yard care company. Waylay Waters, uh, biodynamically grown uh, hemp-infused aromatherapy soaking salts. Earth Coast Productions, our uh, technology and video production partner. Uh, Soil Works, our biodynamic um, soil additive blends. And of course, our many ambassadors, uh, especially those of our ambassadors who have joined our monthly giving program. And if you haven't yet joined our monthly giving program and you'd like to, you can just go to whyonearth.org, click on uh, the donate or support button and set it up for whatever amount you'd like. If, if you wanna give at $33 or more per month as a thank you, we'll send you a jar of the Waylay Waters soaking salts to not only help support some of the mm -hmm. biodynamic and regenerative farms we're collaborating with, but also your own health and well-being. And of course, I also want to be sure to share that um, Vicky's work can be found at rebuggingtheplanet.org. And on social, she's at, uh, at Vicky Hurd, that's V-I-C-K-I-H-I-R-D, on Instagram, Twitter, and now, this is the first time <laughs> I've said this ever, threads. Um, so check her out there. And uh, before we got recording, we also um, discussed Vicky and I, buglife.org.uk as a great resource. Now, I wanna be sure to emphasize in the back of Rebugging the Planet, not only are there a number of rewilding actions that you can take listed out and describe, but there's also a whole bunch in the way of resources and additional um, places and organizations and people you can explore to learn even more about all of this that we're talking about and yeah vicky such a joy to have this chat and, and so let's we've been talking about the the invertebrates in the air the invertebrates in the soil let's let's talk about the mm. water for a while yeah yeah well i mean it's hard to um exaggerate the role that the invertebrates have i mean the interesting thing is there aren't any insects bar one in the oceans, in the in the properly living in the oceans. And that was one of the things I actually found out writing this book, which was fantastic. There's something called the sea strider, which has very long legs, as you can imagine. And I think the name is used in a lot of um, games, you know, gaming things, online gaming. So if you look up strider, sea strider, you might get to a game before you get to the actual bug. But they live in the ocean. They feed on detritus and um, little fish and uh, other um, dead animals. But in the oceans, it's mostly other invertebrates, not insects. And that's an interesting question, why? But people have, think they have the answers, but there's a huge amount of vertebrates. And the tiniest ones are so critical, such as the zooplankton, because the zooplankton is everywhere in the, in, in the um, marine environment. And they have a relationship with the phytoplankton, which is the tiny plants in the, in the marine and And these are so critical for the way in which the um, seas work and the marine environment works in terms of absorbing CO2 and turning it to plant matter. And the zooplankton will eat some of that plant matter and create nutrients for other plants. And that very delicate and complex system can be threatened by climate change. As we know, it's heating the seas and there's a real risk. If, and, and also fishing habits and uh, whaling removing large amounts of the species within in that complex environment can have a really destructive impact on those invertebrates that play a critical role. And also, obviously, a lot of invertebrates form the most of them form the beginning of the food chain in the marine environment. So if, if you like fish, you've got to like the invertebrates um, or the invertebrates that make sure that the phytoplankton, if they're herbivorous fish and so on and so on. So, quite, you know, it's unbelievably complex, but all the way up to the large whales, you know, they some of them actually 
directly eat the krill, which is the um, tiny prawns that uh, uh, some of them live on. It seems incredible. Some of the largest animals on the planet eat the smallest, um, but they rely on the krill, which is a tiny invertebrate. So in the marine environment, unbelievably important, but not many insects. But in the in the freshwater habitat, um, you've got so many insects which do a, a very critical process of turning the plant matter, which often arrives in the in the marine environment, into more digestible smaller pieces for the microbes and the um, uh, digesting um, uh, uh, fungi and microbes to, to do their work without it being broken down it won't it won't be easily accessible to those microbes and then that releases the nutrients again for future plants to, to be grown um, within that water, water habitat or in banks or in you know if that water is with withdrawn for putting on um, fields to grow our food. Um, but they also do a lot of um, cleaning. They're filtering a system. So we used to rely very much on um, reed beds and invertebrates to do the filtration um, of water coming out of, you know, our our um, water closets and our um, sinks, etc. So they were uh, critical. And little animals called rotifers, which I talk about in the book, they're called rotifers because they've got a little head of cilia, which looks like a crown and the cilia are used to, to filter in, um, like a bit like you might think a, a jellyfish, which is also a very important uh, marine environment uh, invertebrate. But those cilia draw in the, the little bits that we want to draw, you know, want to take out of the system. So, I mean, it, it, the water environment, you know, you've got your mollusks, you, you know, your bivalves, you've got your invertebrate and insect um, larval forms. If you like dragonflies or mayflies, they live most of their life in the river and they're beautiful, but they're incredibly voracious carnivores. They will eat an awful lot of animals in that system, um, which is an important part of the system because you need to you need to have, for instance, you could say the mosquito larvae eaten by the dragonfly larvae. So there's a, a wonderful web on in the, in the freshwater habitat. And if you've got a pond, you'll have seen that. And all the mollusks, like the snails, water snails and slugs. And if you don't like slugs in your garden, create a habitat for the leopard slug, because the leopard slug will eat the other slugs. Anyway, there's a, again, it's, it's a complex thing. And a lot of um, Chelsea Green books, some of the Chelsea Green um, organic gardening books, for instance, give loads of ideas about how to, to best create a, a garden which uses nature to control you know the the whole nutrients the pests the disease brilliantly and and they do so but the you know the water habitat it's it, absolutely critical to be stopping polluting it in all the ways that we do or over abstracting it um and that that's very difficult and we've seen right now we've seen droughts and floods in extreme situations which we need to really start to do something we need to stop climate change you know or keep it within 1.5 degrees in order to stop it getting worse um, and then manage the transition to agroecological farming and rewilding and nature-based solutions to hold the water where it lands that's critical you know upland of a town if you, if you haven't got the trees there the water will just rush down and flood the town that's very simplistic but it's actually true um so put the trees back and you can do trees with food as well with agroforestry um and you can do farming well that will retain the, the water as well by making sure you've got cover crops during the winter months Again, that's, you know, there's a lot, it's touched on in my book what you can do, but it's not necessary for farmers because there's a lot of farmers out there. They need uh, detailed information, but it, it's interesting to know what farmers can do and why you should buy from them if you can. Yeah, absolutely, Vicky. Thank you for that. And, and look, I think for all of us, we're all one way or another putting consumer demand signals into the global economy. And, you know, we think of the webworks of the ecological relationships and mm. we very much have webworks in our economic relationships as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Mm. You know, it, you mentioned in the book that at least $57 billion per year um, of mm. food that we trade in the formal economy uh, mm. is completely dependent on invertebrate pollinators. Mm. And yeah. Ironically, so many of the very large uh, companies and, and global corporations that are uh, doing so much of our food production and food processing continue uh, to be the major uh, users of certain toxic chemicals and or mm -hmm. are requiring farmers that supply them to utilize certain toxic mm -hmm. chemicals. And 
I wanted to point out not not to, to shame and blame or, or call out necessarily any particular company. And, and I know that in virtually every major company right now, work is being done on the inside by people who understand yep. that many of these practices and behaviors can be done better and need to change. And of course, we see more and more farmers transitioning to regenerative practices, which is beautiful. Yep. Yep. And I just want to sh share, right, because you, you, you make this express, and I, I think it's important, we really understand this. You say, um, agricultural commodity traders are now the most powerful companies in the industrial food chain. Six companies control most of the global food trade and earn somewhere around $380 billion, and these are 2018 numbers. Yes. It's changed revenues, since the Ukraine invasion, definitely. Mm. Yeah, revenues of the world's largest, the privately owned company Cargill, were at $115 billion at that time. So, you know, just tell us from your perspective, what, what, it, what is this? What yeah. is, why do we need to know about this? I th there's, there's so many problems with it. Um, I mean, it could be just, I could just boil it down to money and power. Um, you know, they, they've taken so much power out of the farmer's hands and out of the citizen's hands. And out of, although you think you've got a huge cornucopia when you go into the shop, it's actually a lot of the same stuff just packaged up to make you buy it. Um, but they've taken power from the farmers, consumers and the governance that, you know, our government's hands um, because they're so, they're supernatural, they're international. They don't necessarily do what any government tells them. Um, and they take an awful lot of the wealth of the food system. Um, and I think if we don't start to control them, that's a really big part. You know, it, it won't, this won't work because they're driving a demand globally and particularly in areas which, which haven't had this um, for highly processed foods, for um, very, you know, junk foods, as you call them, high foot fat fatty, sugary, salty foods that come inevitably from big monocultures, heavily chemically um, sprayed monocultures, because farmers have to produce it very cheap raw materials for this junk food to go to fill the supermarket shelves. Instead of the food ingredients, which we used to just have access to mostly, you know, I'm not against treats, I'm not against ready meals. It's just the volume of it, the dominance of it is a big part of the problem. And that's what feeds Cargill and the others pockets because they that's what they trade in and they're so powerful it, it, it's deeply worrying and uh we need to take back that power through what we buy and you know trying to purchase as i said earlier fresh if you can or at least minimally processed and ideally go through a great trader like a shop that you know buys from um local farmers um or just you know, just do a bit if you can. Um, but also it's healthier for you if you don't buy very highly processed foods, um, which are being increase, increasingly dominating across the globe. Um, that's what we want the UN and other global institutions to address um, and start to, to really celebrate and protect and nurture local food systems um, wherever they are. And those farmers that should be at the heart of that and be able to produce diverse produce, not huge, cheap, raw material monocultures for these enormous companies. <clears throat> that, you know, this this is happening in South America. It's happening in Asia. But it's, you know, it's already been well established in Europe and North America. And so, we you know, we've pop modeled this approach. We need to really unmodel it, model a new approach. And we can do that. Absolutely. Vicky. Yeah. You know, I um I'm so struck that throughout the food supply chains, when we're looking at regenerative practices and really healthy and nutritious and what we might call mm -hmm. like slower food practices, yeah. mm -hmm. um, you know, the margins are not that great. They're not great. It's yeah. interesting that for the giant corporations, these mm -hmm. highly processed foods have actually very fat margins. And mm. interestingly, as you mentioned, they also are, are among the primary contributors to many of the health and emotional and even yep. mental health um, mm -hmm. epidemics we're seeing worldwide. And as I wrote Absolutely. in my book, Why on Earth, when we're getting that mm. that candy bar or that can of soda for a, mm. a dollar or two or a pound or two or a euro mm. or two or whatever, a yen or two, um, it's doing two things. It's it's maximizing the flow of that dollar right back to the giant corporation, mm. and because of special formulations in the the sugar, the fat, and the blending, it's 
mm. causing us almost like an addiction to want to buy the next one as soon Absolutely. as Absolutely. Incredibly addictive. And that's exactly how they market, you know, they know this. The companies know this. They, they, and that, that's why it's grown and grown and grown. It's it's uh, playing on a, a physiological trick in our bodies, which comes from when we needed a bit of sugar. Um, you know, we'd find a, a hive, you know, wild honeybee hive and we'd be ecstatic but you don't get you know now we've got honeybee hives in our fridge effectively um in the form of uh soda and uh heavily fatty sugary salty products it's it's a it's a disaster for the planet and our health and i also think they're investing heavily in non-soil based systems you know in in the uk there's an awful lot of interest in vertical farms and hydroponics and i think they probably have their place you know we'll have to do some of that but to have a non-soil food system entirely feeding us worries me deeply because of the microbiota that's in our in our stomachs and and actually our whole bodies are full of other bugs you know we have a whole community in us and to, that's partly from our food system and uh removing that it's an untold uh, unknown impact i think yeah and we're seeing a lot of research around mm -hmm. Uh, neurobiochemical performance, cognitive performance. Mood. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's all connected. It's all connected, and it's connected to the soil and the bugs in the soil and the bug yeah. stomachs in the soil. I think. Yeah, well, people don't like to think about that, but it, it is true, and it's healthy. It's not unhealthy. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, I spoke with a colleague a number of years ago who had fled the big. Uh, corporate ag world and was doing work in the regenerative ag world more mm -hmm. recently. But he was connected to one of the giant um, fast food companies laboratory where they concoct the blend of about 25 chemicals for the French fries. And I won't name any names. Oh, yeah. Mean, yeah, yeah. Golden arches or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, basically, <laughs> what they did was uh, uh, determine the blend of chemicals that would act on the body's neurobiochemistry in the very same way that mm. heroin opioids um scary music mm. behavior right yeah yeah and advertising is like that as well they the advertising is so and marketing and promotions so sophisticated we don't realize that we're being manipulated um you know even i you know i'm susceptible we're all susceptible we see adverts Every time we step out the door or, or turn the telly on or put the um, a game on for our kids, the advert and promotion is is driving us to buy these things in a way we don't really realize it making us feel good. You know, uh, if I buy that product, it makes me feel good. I'm, I'm smart or I'm healthy or I'm muscular or I'm, you know, it, it, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. If we could turn that brilliance into uh, something else to driving us to produce, to actually rediscover cooking and eating ourselves, it would be it'd be so great. But then they won't make their money from that. I mean, it, it's, it's fair to say that, as you said, that the supermarkets don't make a huge amount of money in the UK. We did a piece of work um, at the end of last year that showed just how tiny amount of money goes to the farmers. They're less than 1p far less than 1p for a, for a loaf of bread 0.09 pennies which i can't imagine in cents but it's almost nothing and cheddar and carrots and apples they got almost nothing the supermarket didn't get that much either but they're so large that you know they can get a lot but there's an awful lot in the middle which takes the wealth so it's not as simple as saying supermarkets bad farmers need more you know it it's something that we've got to get our governance to do something about have fairer supply chains where farmers get the a, a decent reward for producing agroecologically and uh, looking after their animals if, and all this kind of thing so it's it's a, a complex thing which we can't all do as consumers we can do something but we really need to demand more of our governments absolutely absolutely let me let me share this other passage from your book mm. just 10 companies nestle mm. pepsico coca-cola unilever danone general mills kellogg's mars associated british foods and mandela's control almost every large food and beverage brand in the world and they make, as you mentioned, as we've been discussing, they make some of the largest profit margins in the food chain. And you also mentioned that just 30 global mm -hmm. supermarket chains control a third of the global retail food market. So, yeah, this is extraordinary. And look, some of these companies, um, Danone or Unilever, are actually already doing some work in the regenerative agriculture yeah, space. Right? So they we're, are. Mm -hmm. we're seeing some movement and we need mm -hmm. a lot more. And so, yeah. 
to your point, the consumer demand and the pressure on policy are yeah. the, I think, the two levers. Um, yeah. And I love your commentary about the advertising, the the storytelling, yeah. the messaging, the power here, because mm. what, I, what we're anticipating is over the next few years, we're going to see a whole lot more of really effective storytelling and messaging coming from the regenerative and stewardship oriented yeah. businesses. That's great. And ideally, they will be able to tell a story which will be about about the health of the soil and the health of the, the wildlife, including the invertebrates, but also the health of your body. And in a way that really um, drives it in the right direction, so drive consumers in the right direction without making them pay a fortune. I mean, one of the, one of the problems is, you know, the really good stuff costs more, which is crazy. It's, it's, and they have to declare themselves, whereas the bad stuff, they don't have to declare that they've got this, that and this chemicals, you know, in the production. Um, they might have to do the ingredients list, but they don't talk about which neonicotinoid insecticides were used in the production. You know, whereas organic producer has to certify organic. Something really unbalanced about that. But the future, hopefully, that will shift and more and more people will be able to afford really you know good regenerative agroecological production absolutely absolutely well it's it's vicky such a joy to have this opportunity right. to visit with you and of course we're gonna after wrapping up our main uh podcast episode gonna take a few minutes with our behind the scenes chat for our ambassador network again if if audience you would like to join the ambassador network please go to whyonearth.org and you'll get that journey started with us there and uh, so, Vicky, before wrapping up here and, and transitioning to that, um, I just want to thank you, of course, for joining My us. My pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, give you the floor. If there's anything else you'd like to share or say with our audience, please, the floor is yours. I, I would I, I would say if, if, if you're listening or watching, if you can be an ambassador for the invertebrates in whatever you, way you can, that will be really great. One of the things that often happens with children, they adore invertebrates. They're fascinated by them. But as they get a bit older, they get the fear. And that fear usually comes from older people. So try and not be the person that gives them that fear, but gives them the fascination and maintains that fascination. But also with your colleagues, with your family, um, in your community, in your parish, your churches, talk about the importance of the invertebrates if you can read about it in the book or on my website um their role in our lives is so critical so be bug ambassadors if you can and and have a bug plan just three things you can do over the next year and uh that will be really great but spreading the word is critical mm, absolutely brilliant brilliant well thank you so much vicky my pleasure the Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WhyOnEarth, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.